welcome to the Theos podcast. I am extremely excited to be here. This is the first podcast that I'm going to be involved in. I'm recently back from maternity leave and uh, before I worked at Theos, I had a background in radio. So to be back with microphones, uh, thinking through scripts and recording things, trying to really uh, communicate something through this wonderful medium of sound is uh, right in my sweet spot. So it's brilliant. You may have heard some of our earlier Theos podcasts. We are going to try and do something a little bit different, certainly for our next few. And that's because while I was away from Theos uh, looking after a young baby and a, a three-year-old, I took a little break from social media, from the news cycle, from this overwhelming flow of information that comes at us. Many of you might have done this. You might have done this for part of a spiritual practice or just a sense of really needing a digital detox. But the world calls us back to it. And as I went back on Twitter, rediscovered our news cycle, I felt like I had fresh eyes to just how fractured our public conversations are, just how poorly we are doing them, just how often we're talking past each other, particularly around matters of uh, belief and unbelief, religion and spirituality, but more broadly about our deepest values, what makes human beings tick, how we live good lives. And so I'm going to take this opportunity over the next few Theos podcasts to really talk to a series of people about this issue. Well, I think all of us feel it. We feel uh, the urgency of this problem, but we're slightly stuck in tram tracks. We don't know what to do about it. So I hope that together with the people that I'm talking to and with this wider community around the podcast, we might be able uh, to come up with some wisdom together. in a beautiful kitchen in Putney, looking out at the autumn leaves in the garden with Dr. Jonathan Rousen. Some of you may know him. He is the co-founder and director of Perspectiva, which we're going to hear some more about. Prior to that, he was the director of the Social Brain Centre at the RSA, where he authored a range of influential reports about climate change, about behaviour change and about spirituality. And uh, we actually met working on that project about spirituality. And we've gone on since then to have many really stretching and stimulating conversations over a glass of wine. So I already know what a treat you're in for. Uh, Jonathan calls himself, I think, is this right, an applied philosopher? Yes, that's the latest, yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the latest term, <laughs> how to define his many callings. Um, he's got degrees from Oxford, Bristol and Harvard. And just, you know, on top of all that, he was a chess grandmaster and British chess champion. Um, in a previous life, but chess continues to be a way uh, that he, you, a tool he uses to think about the world and he's incredibly passionate about it. Uh, I'm so grateful to have some time to speak to him together. It's a massive privilege to have access to his immense brain and I think much more importantly, his deep wisdom. So Jonathan, thank you so much for talking to us. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to start with a really, um, a really big one. I want to hear more about you uh, to understand how you tick. And one of the things that you talk about in Spiritualized, which is the most um, recent publication from Perspectiva building on that work at the RSA, is the sacred. This idea that as a society we don't really understand the sacred. We kind of live in a desacralized world in lots of ways. We're nervous of it. But actually, writers like Jonathan Haidt and Scott. 
Atran really want to remind us that the reason we have bad public conversations and actually the reason we sometimes can't live together is we don't understand what each other holds sacred and we often don't understand what we ourselves hold sacred or know how to articulate that maybe. So uh, what do you hold sacred? Gosh, it was a huge question with enormous resonance. Um, if I can start with myself um, and just sort of examine my own experience. Um, the sacred is really that which it goes beyond instrumentality. So the sacred is the thing that you, you value, not because of its consequences, but because of its nature and inherent meaning and purpose and value. Now, where does that manifest in our lives? Well, you would think that it would manifest in things like your family and your loved ones being sacred, but actually that's not really the heart of the matter. I think sacred points towards something else. The sacred is a thing that if somebody were to take that away, you would feel your life had lost all sort of moorings and, and meaning. So the sacred are the things that when it's attacked, we respond as if our very life is under under threat. Um, I'm still haven't answered the question, of course, but I think for me, I would say what is sacred is a certain amount of uh, honesty with oneself. Um, there's something there's something I think deeply courageous about the effort to come to see through the layers of delusions that we create through in our lives. And there's something sacred also about the attempt to really connect with other people um, because that's very, very difficult because we, we typically filter our, in our relationships through our own sort of sense of who is this person for me? What can they do for me? So actually get to the point where the reality of another person becomes pertinent. So famous quotation by Iris Murdoch comes to mind, which is that love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. And I think for me, that is kind of sacred, the sort of recognition that there is a world beyond the self, a world beyond the psyche, that there, the sort of, although the self can be a kind of gilded cage and it's not such a bad place to be, it's very important that we sort of push ourselves beyond that to sort of begin to see that there is more going on in the world. And the final thing on Brexit, on, on the, the sacred, I would say, and you know, it's Brexit coming in there. And there's a reason, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. The reason is that I Actually, I think the heart of what happened with Brexit is that something that was supposedly democratic was in fact treated as if it was sacred um, and wrongly so in my view. So in if, what, what I mean by that is if this were merely a democratic outcome, the question of whether we should really take it a, a sort of non, non-binding referendum to actually necessarily mean uh, we have to instigate it immediately. Uh, but actually that wasn't even permissible. That question was almost taboo. Um, and that's because it wasn't really treated democratically. It was treated sacredly. And by that, I mean the very idea that we might question that outcome as meaning anything other than what those who were most invested in the outcome said it would mean um, was considered sort of sacrilegious. It was considered uh, taboo and, and sort of wrong. Um, and that's really curious for me because even now, more than a year on, um, it's been very hard for people to find their democratic voice. You do get people saying democracy didn't end with the result, but actually what's what's kicking against that is some felt sense of the sacred in the background of this, which is people say, if you attack that, I'm going to give my whole life to sort of kicking back and fighting back. Why that is and whether it's wise and so forth is a much d- deeper question, but I think it's a f- fair to say the sacred is, you know, it permeates life. It's not in a particular place. It's something more like a disposition towards certain things that are of inherent value. But I think we also need to be a little bit open to the very meaning of the sacred, to live as though that were a a question and not something that was sort of fixed. Maybe that's why it's so hard to get through a day without saying the word Brexit or bringing Brexit into a conversation, because this isn't a kind of technocratic decision about supranational government bodies and uh, transitioning within legal structures in the way that perhaps we might have thought looking at it in advance that it might be, that it was, you know, really quite a procedural thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Far from it. I mean, the, arguably, the winning line of the campaign was take back control. Now, I think Will Davies, the sociologist, had a great line about that. He said it, it connected the macroeconomic to the psychoanalytic. In other mm-hmm. words, it went all the way from the structures of the economy to the sort of personal experience of anxiety and losing control of your life. And it also managed to highlight a kind of scapegoat uh, in the form of this supranational institution that most people had no direct experience of in their life. But through this expression, take back control, a relationship was created that was mostly, in my view, invalid. But it was enough for people to find meaning in the question and thereby vote as if their life was at stake. And that's what's led to this outcome whereby it looks like we can't even talk freely about what we really feel about it uh, and be open to the idea that it might not be such a great idea. You've given me a a clue, but uh, we think at Theos a lot about what has Christianity done for us in some ways? What are the values um, that we as a nation and more broadly are built in? And and some of the questions to the answer, some of the answers to the question of what is sacred for a nation, say 50 years ago or 100 years ago, would have drawn deeply on on Christianity, on perhaps the value of the human person, some of those values that we get coming from the Ten Commandments and the New Testament about um, the kind of option for the poor, the the mindfulness of the marginalised. However, and we did highly um, imperfectly apply those nationally. So where do you think we are now? Do Do you think we have any common things that we hold sacred, perhaps democracy, if what you've mentioned, perhaps some darker things that we that we hold sacred. Well, this is part of the challenge. It's that, you know, as as Charles Taylor has famously said, that, that one of the characteristics of the secular age is that belief in God is no longer axiomatic. By axiomatic, I mean, it's not something that you can rely on as the foundation of everything else. So, you know, it's one might say mathematically one plus one equals two is an axiom. If you question that, the whole edifice crumbles. Um, in the same way, we don't have real axioms like that. That's precisely the problem of our time. And one of the reasons I worked on Spiritualize was people have noticed this coming, by the way, Nietzsche, Heidegger, lots of philosophers have seen this problem arising, that once uh, we no longer have the shared default setting of these are our beliefs about reality and the self and meaning and purpose and morality, which is a lot, of course, but that if you, once you have that sort of shared set of default assumptions, you still have arguments, you still have you know wars even, you still have big fall- fallouts. But the question of what's it all about doesn't quite arise in the same way. Whereas now, um, we really do lack that shared reference point and, and that manifests because when you ask what is sacred, you know, I can think of perfectly respectable free marketeers for whom the free market or their idea of the free market at least is somehow sacred. In other words, this is something I deeply believe in to help humanity and if you challenge this, you're attacking the very core of all that's good in the world. I can think of sort of old school conservatives who will say, I believe deeply in, in trusting in the, the inherent wisdom of our institutions and the status quo because many generations have given rise to them and who are we to suddenly have some harebrained idea to challenge them. So the, the challenge of the sacred is that we do need features of life that are not instrumental. We do need reference points and touchstones that go beyond cost-benefit calculation. But we don't currently have many of them that are truly shared. Um, you can point to the golden rule, for example, of love thy neighbor as thyself, and few would disagree with that. But when that ha- when that arises in practice, it's a much, more, much different story, a very challenging thing to live up to. So I think that is the question. You know, there's no, I don't have the answer. I just think the question we need to figure out is, what do you do in a world where we have to work together, but we struggle to see what our, what our shared touchstones are? Maybe they are there waiting to be uncovered and translated, and, and I'm sure your work speaks to that. But I think that is precisely what we have to work on. We've talked 
talked before about uh, and repeatedly at the RSA and other places about how important it is to ground some of these big ideas, these abstract concepts in the personal and the relational and who we are to particularly around religion, spirituality, belief and unbelief, but more broadly, um, be, a, be really open about who we are and where we're coming from because everyone's got a perspective, everyone's got a set of lenses and our desire to sound and be neutral or objective really stops us having yeah. honest conversations. So I'd love you to say a bit about when you think about your identity, what words come to mind? Listeners might be able to hear a Scottish burr. There's Diwali lights up in this beautiful house. Um, who are you, Jonathan? Help us understand where you're coming from. Well, um, I was born in Aberdeen in 1977. Um, my major highlights of my childhood were uh, learning chess as a five-year-old, becoming a type one diabetic as a six-year-old, my parents separating when I was about nine or so, um, spending quite a lot of time alone in my early uh, you know 10, 11 early teens sort of time um, and that time chess was a kind of refuge through chess I found a degree of control and purpose that allowed me to sort of in technical terms sublimate or in other language just escape a lot of emotional uh, things that were happening in my life um, and in that time I guess I became uh, quite interested in the inner world I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was going on I don't think I had a particularly traumatic upbringing but it was challenging there were moments of quite a lot of mental illness in my father in my family for example I have very close family members who are schizophrenic so there's a real challenge of just how, knowing how frail our mental health is is quite important quite big for me so one of my main challenges is just to get through the day and uh, stay sane because that I think that's in itself quite a big achievement sometimes but I suppose the next big thing that happened was I um, I got chess was always there but I, I through that I grew, grew in intellectual confidence I managed to get into Oxford I studied politics philosophy and economics which is now a kind of almost a sort of source of shame. I mean, it was a great source of pride and it still is, but it's interesting to see how that's become caricatured in the world. Um, and then I uh, drifted a little bit, played chess for a while, uh, went to Harvard for a year. My interest shifted a little bit towards psychology and education. And then again, I wasn't sure what to do. So in my sort of mid-twenties, I did a PhD because like many people, I didn't know what else to do. Um, and that was about the subject of wisdom. It was what does it mean to become wiser? And I had all sorts of ideas about what that project would be, what kind of research questions I'd ask. But in the end, it really became about the process, almost like a prior question of what does it mean to be doing this thesis? You know, why would I care about this question? Um, and I think one of the reasons I care about the question is that I, my general impression is that most of us are a little bit deluded, and I include myself in that. I think it's quite difficult to actually have a, a sort of relationship with reality and other people that isn't sort of distorted in some way. And actually, that's an ongoing battle to see clearly and feel clearly and um, to be connected to yourself, to others and to the world in a way that is sort of you know, of value and, and feel so you can really feel alive. Um, and that's an ongoing challenge. And then I think the big, next biggest thing that happened is around that time I got married to Shiva, um, who is a lecturer in law at the London School of Economics or an associate professor now. Um, and she is Indian, of course, and uh, India has become quite a big part of my life. Um, in philosophically to some extent spiritually and definitely personally 
Um, today is part of the Festival of Diwali and so I was woken up this morning by Shiva to go and have a look at some of the lights and say a few things in celebration of the time. There's some more sweets than usual in the house uh, and that's just the way things are. And around that time of getting married, I suppose my life changed a lot. Subsequently, I've had two children, a two-year-old and an eight-year-old. Vishnu is two and Kadash is eight. Uh, you can hear that Shiva got the names uh, on the Indian side, but they were taking my second name. I'd say our family is fairly matriarchal. I'd say Shiva sort of rules the roost mostly. And uh, But that kind of works. We've found some kind of equilibrium in that. And I would also say that uh, it was partly because of Shiva that I ended up applying to the RSA about what's now about nine years ago. Um, but at the time, I was still a bit stuck in my chess world because there, of course, I had a lot of, I acquired quite a lot of status, become quite a good player and I'd written a lot and I was known. And I had to kind of surrender a lot of that um, and move into a kind of different phase of life. But when I joined the RSA, although it's a wonderful place to work and I got a lot of autonomy and uh, um, attention in, in a good sense, um, it was still meant going back at quite a low level of the, the sort of ladder. And um, But through that, I got to study and research and, and speak and do all the things I love doing uh, and laterally worked on spirituality, as you know. And through that process, developed the kind of maturity and maybe skill, hopefully, to create my own organization, which I did with a, a friend and colleague called Thomas Bjorkman from Sweden. And that's been going for just over a year now. Um, so I spend a lot of my time changing nappies and doing shopping and chores at home, uh, looking after the kids and, and that sort of thing, which, as you know, is not, not the, quite the, the easy thing and the pleasant thing it's always presented as being. It's often extremely exacting. And some of my time thinking about big, complex human challenges. But I'm particularly interested in how they relate to our inner worlds because I feel there's something about that relationship between uh, the inquiry into the self and the inquiry into the nature of ultimate reality and nitty-gritty questions of how do you have, you know, a viable, prosperous economy in a planet of the finite resources where um, you have artificial intelligence coming and you have a lot of data mining going on and you have democratic uh, institutions weakening and climate change is very much arrived already. Um, it's, a, it's a real mess. Uh, and the question is just how to acknowledge the mess and get more deeply into it without being shrill and panicky, you know, to sort of realize a lot of things are going right as well. So not to be Pollyanna-esque about it, but somehow a big part of my identity is recently, what does it mean to be a grown-up? You know, becoming 40, I recently turned 40. And that's a big question for me. I don't always manage it, but there is something about being a grown-up that's not just seeing everything's going to hell in a handcart, but realizing, hang on, by many measures, we're happier and more prosperous than ever before. And yet genuine crises as well. I want to take you back to uh, that period in 2014 and the lead up really to that project on spirituality at the RSA. I remember when I got involved, uh, when obviously all the applications had been written, the funding had been given, um, there were still quite a lot of raised eyebrows at an, an ancient institution like the RSA, very much 21st century enlightenment, mm. really uh, tackling this perhaps woolly seeming subject. What made you want to do it? Well, at the time, I 
my general feeling inside was, why don't people realize this is the most important question to be asking? And so it was sort of trying to test that a little bit. Maybe they'll tell me, you know, if I say, look, this is why you should do this. And this is why I think this is, here's why you should do this uh, and try and link it to reference points that are more understandable for people. So in, that, in this case, it was like this. It was saying, not just we need to talk about spirituality, although that was there. It was more that, look, a lot of my work is about reimagining what human nature is, reimagining the you know, the kind of creatures we are. Now, at the time, critiques of so-called homo economicus were, were well-known. So critiques of the idea that we're primarily rational, self-interested creatures were were well-known. They were sort of pervasive. And instead of that, it was becoming clear that we're quite very deeply social, not only in the way that we um, have evolved, but also just in terms of how we're influenced and how we make decisions, uh, very susceptible to social influences. And also that we're very deeply automatic, that actually that notion that we're in control and planning is really a small subset of how we behave. And then there are issues about the impact of culture and um, impact of technology. And in general, the, the whole axiom of what is a human being had shifted. And in that context, shouldn't we come back to these deeper questions? Not just about how is the human being, but what were the prior stories? Uh, what, what, what are the big questions about how human nature links with nature as such and therefore reality as such? So, and on top of that, what does all of that mean for how we're organizing the world at the level of the political economy. And obviously you can't answer all those questions at once, but I did try. I did kind of try and hold them together. Another thing that I tried to do was to hold three different kinds of tribes loosely loosely understood. One, you were one of them, Liz. So you were in the tribe called the Religious Diplomats. And the Religious Diplomats were a tribe who could sort of sense we were onto something good, that we're doing important work. Uh, and they wanted to be part of it. But they're also just a little bit wary. You know, is this... Is this real and genuine, this inquiry, or is this kind of like, let it all hang out and go into the fields and sing songs and light candles in the bath or, you know, whatever, whatever people associate with sort of naive spirituality. And then there were groups that I would call the kind of spiritual swingers, if you like. They were the people for whom anything goes, like as long as it's spiritual, it doesn't matter whether it's um, you know, some kind of meditation or some kind of Ouija board, it, you know, for them, as long as it was broadly spiritual, they were kind of there and intrigued. And then there was a group that in some ways I was speaking to most directly, whom I called the intellectual assassins. And that group were those who, were, they, they were assassins in the, the kindest sense of the term, because they weren't necessarily bad people at all, but they were very quick to ask for your definitions and usually with a view to trying to take it apart. So they say, what do you mean by spirituality? Tell me quickly. And I'd say, well, it's roughly like this and it's a bit about that and it's kind of about that. And they go, well, it sounds really woolly. Why are you doing it? You know, in that kind of interrogative, challenging mode. And also if you can't define it clearly, you don't really know what you're talking about. Now, these three groups, religious diplomats, spiritual swingers, and intellectual assassins, most people fall into one of them or a mixture of them. But the project was defined by the fact that I, I saw myself in all three of them. You know, I'm quite experimental in some ways. Um, I sort of quite sort of trained intellectually. So I'm quite keen that things make sense and cohere have an evidence base and so on. And I've also got a sort of sympathy towards religion, partly through marriage and Hinduism, partly through being culturally Christian, partly through a lot of books on Buddhism I've read over the years, partly through meditative practice. So for me, all of those things were brought to bear. And I was trying to find a way of bringing together a notion of the spiritual where everyone could see themselves without having to collapse those prior commitments that they had. I'm going to do what I often do, uh, which is push you to be a bit more personal because you have talked about the kind of intellectual um, motivation for the project. But tell me, uh, 
you know, how would you have described yourself perhaps in your adult life? Have you ever called right. yourself an atheist or an agnostic? So I've, I've, I've never called myself an atheist, um, but I resisted fiercely the notion of being a uh, Christian for a long time. Um, and, I, and I'm only beginning to sort of understand why. We'll maybe come on to that later. Um, at the time, though, and it was actually 2012 rather than 2014. At the time, I felt that religion was had kind of not exactly run its course, but there was, a, there was the where I was in, in myself was that we need something that learns from religion in some way, but goes beyond it. So the kind of Alan de Botton religion for atheists. It was sort a, of or sort the Sunday of, assembly. It was yeah, it was sort of a mixture of maybe Alan de Botton Sunday assembly, but I was adding the qualification that I don't think we know our metaphysics. I don't think we know the ultimate nature of reality. I'm not sure God doesn't exist. I'm not sure that everything is matter. Uh, I'm not sure that there isn't some kind of objective ethics out there. So I wasn't, I didn't want to collapse the wave function on those deeper questions. I wanted to keep them in the equation. Sorry, Jonathan, collapse the wave function. On but the I just mean, I wanted to keep them, you know, okay, you asked me to be personal. So here's, here's one way of doing it. I used to play chess professionally, as you mentioned, and, and chess players have this expression called keep the tension. And what it means is that when you're in a complex position, uh, because it's quite hard to think everything through, there's often a tendency that anything that can be resolved in the position, you try and resolve. So you simplify it. So you, that pawn capture, you get that out of the way. That check you want to make, you give the check. But actually, that's, a, that's a, quite a low skill level. The higher, the better you get, the more sophisticated your understanding, the more you realize that keeping the tension tends to favor you, especially because the side who has a more complex understanding can handle the tension better. So in the same way, coming back to the world of spirituality and so forth, I wanted to keep the tension, which means I didn't want to draw very clear lines saying, this is a project for atheists. This is a project for theists. I wanted to say, look, we need to move beyond that. We need to find a way of keeping the tension between these different views of the world so that you can find some degree of common cause within it. And you don't necessarily have to fear that we're going to have some big fusion or blancmange where everyone just becomes like everyone else. You can keep your separate identities, your separate intellectual and spiritual commitments, but you might find that you nonetheless have a great deal in common um, and that there's scope to pursue depth together too. We're just going to take a break from this conversation with Jonathan Rousen at the moment to hear a little bit about what the Theos team are up to. in the Theos office and really pleased to have been able to drag Nick Spencer out from behind his dusty towers of books where he sits scribbling frantically with furrowed brow to get him to speak a little bit about his new book. Many of you will already know Nick. He's our director of research here at Theos and he's written really widely on the interrelation between religion and politics. His latest book sets out to rescue an innocent biblical parable mugged by political rhetoric and left half dead. Yes, it's the Good Samaritan. The book is called The Political Samaritan. Nick, what made you want to write it? Everyone likes The Parable of the Good Samaritan. It doesn't matter if you're Margaret Thatcher or Jeremy Corbyn or somewhere in between those poles. It seems to come up time and time and time again. It's by no means the own the only biblical parable or phrase used in political rhetoric, but it's used way more than all the others. So I wanted to look at who used it, how they used it, why they used it, 
And who got it right? And what did you learn? It's as old as the hills in one regard. You can get political rhetoric in Britain going back to the 19th century, people drawing on it. The modern tradition really starts in 1968 with a speech that Margaret Thatcher gave. And then she mainstreamed it, as it were, in a couple of major lectures she gave in the 70s. After that, it's been used across the political spectrum, although interestingly, by politicians on the left with a degree of deniability, they much prefer to talk about passing or rather not passing by on the other side side of the road. In fact, it's almost become a cipher for the purpose of government on the left. Government is to intervene, to get involved. Government in and of itself is the Good Samaritan. And time and time again, you get politicians, even from very prominent stages like Gordon Brown at the dispatch box or Tony Blair at the party conference leader speech, talking about how government is effectively like a Good Samaritan, getting involved, crossing the road, taking risks. And how would politicians on the right use the parable? Well, it's interesting, you see, they have a slight nervousness about it, despite the fact that the modern tradition can be dated to Thatcher, possibly because of Thatcher's usage. She actually used it in different ways, but her most famous use of the parable is, well, to quote her interview she did with Brian Walden on London Weekend Television back in the early 80s, no one would remember the Good Samaritan if he only had good intentions. He had possessions as well. And that became something of an albatross really for her. Critics pointed at the parable and her use of it and said, ah, she has imported materialism or consumerism or capitalism into Jesus's parable. Well, in actual fact, it means dot, 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 something else. So even though Tories have used it and have used it in a variety of different ways, that particular usage has become a bit of a lodestone for them. I was uh, surprised to see recently after the Texas church shooting the the guy who took down uh, the attacker described as a good Samaritan. And then we discussed then how that was uh, stretching a little bit, how perhaps Jesus had intended that. Uh, that parable to be read. Yes, that's right. I, I quote um, Hillary Benn um, at the end of the mammoth, um, shall we bomb Syria debate back in the end of 2015, who uses very briefly the parable in his exhortation of his own Labour colleagues to to be more to be a militarily interventionist. And David Mitchell rather wittily picked that up in the Guardian a day or two later and said that Hillary Benn had a pretty robust interpretation of the Good Samaritan. Ben wasn't basing his entire argument by any means on one parable. But it's interesting to see how a story in which the only time violence appears in it, it appears negatively, good reading. Well, The Political Samaritan is available in all good bookshops. It's $12.99 or uh, shortly it'll be available on the Theos website for a nice discount. So returning to our conversation with Jonathan Rowson, you uh, have talked about how in 2014, before your project around spirituality, you wanted to uh, explore these central questions, but perhaps something that went beyond religion or past religion. You weren't unsympathetic, but you didn't think it was perhaps uh, central or uh, certainly personally where you sat. Yeah. Um, tell me, where are you now on that? I'm confused at a higher level, I think, would be the quick answer. Back then... Um, I didn't know much about the thing that I decided I didn't that had passed its sell-by date. You know, I was sort of making huge judgments about religion, particularly Christianity, 
from a position of mostly ignorance. And actually, I think that's very interesting for lots of reasons. One is that I think it's not unusual. And actually, I now find it's very pervasive in communities that consider themselves spiritual. So the whole spiritual but not religious group. And there's something hilarious about that term. And now it just cracks me up because for a long time, that was kind of how I defined myself. But actually, the, the pointing out you're not, but not religious, you know, it's like saying you're, you're in medicine, but you're not a doctor or you're in education, but you're not a teacher or, you know, something like that. Or, or a lot of it, right, teacher, but not an education. Um, so there's something really weird about that defensive reflex. It's like a kind of cultural tick. Um, and the reason for that is that I think most people sense, even if they can't articulate or even if they don't really know at some gut level, that religion still has a lot to offer. In fact, we've we've, we've, we've lost a, huge, a great deal in the process of trying to overcome certain problems we had with it. Um, and now there isn't really enough public education or experience to know what's been lost. There's a kind of tragedy of uh, not, not really understanding the thing that we need is already there at some level. Now, it's it's interesting to unpack that a little bit because as you probably know there are layers to you know many layers to religion all the way from beliefs about ultimate reality to what's suggested morally by that and how strong that moral feeling is to the kind of communities you're part of to the kind of institutions and even buildings that there are to the kind of practices from singing and praying and whatnot that's going on and I think when people say I'm not religious and they sort of throw out that whole bunch of stuff um, something really strange has happened because actually they'll try and get those things elsewhere in their lives so the feeling of uh, solidarity and, and communal experience congregational experience might come from I don't know a football match or a rave the 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 need for a kind of metaphysics or a story of the, of the world as a whole will come from you know TED talks and they'll often be disappointed but there'll, there'll, be, there'll be different ways that people reach for that those nuggets of meaning and understanding that they feel they need and so if they're doing that and yet all along there's this these bodies of, of knowledge and, and wisdom and practice that are saying, you know, we've thought a lot about these things already. You know, there's many centuries of tradition in here. Um, I realize there are things that we're saying that you don't understand or, or that you don't like. But if you could maybe just come here for a little bit and we'll talk, you might find that your allergy is not quite as strong as you think and that really we're, we're just human like you, trying to figure things out like you. And we found something that isn't really an answer, but it at least gives us a holding pattern in which we can explore the questions better. And to be honest, Liz, that's what you offered. That's what you brought to the project at the time. It was a sort of, a, a, sort of a, a Christian you could sort of feel comfortable with. Um, now, there, there were, I've subsequently discovered that, you're, you know, that's not an unusual thing. Um, but believe it or not, that for many people, uh, Christianity had become a kind of awkwardness, a kind of cultural ickiness, if you like. And one of the ways I remember that manifesting, I won't name them because they, I haven't got their permission, but there's a close friend of mine who's a kind of public intellectual in his own right, who was Christian for a time. He became Christian. He was quite public about it. And at the time, I thought, oh, no, what has he done? Because I, I felt as though once he's Christian, he couldn't really be anything else. It's like, you know, you can't really be a Christian Marxist or a Christian Stoic or a Christian, you know, existentialist, whatever. Of course you can. And yet I think there's something about the public perception that if you're Christian, you must be a certain way. And that way is often quite moralistic and, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of attention to this person, Jesus, who people are unsure about. And this Bible, which looks a bit, you know, as not, not a very authoritative source, maybe. And the churches, which feel very old fashioned and all of those kind of associations. Now, the tragedy here is that, well, I'll let you 
ask about the tragedy, but I think there is a tragedy. Well, that's really, I wanted to follow up because uh, you know that for me and for many others, there is this real cognitive dif- dissonance between, uh, you know, to talk very specifically, the Christianity that we feel affiliated to, you know, the scripture that we read and wrestle with, yes, but love and find beauty and, beauty and richness in this extraordinary person of Jesus Christ on those pages and, you know, dare I drop the G-bomb again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the existence of God and a relationship with God. Yeah. Um, that seems to bring life and flourishing both personally and where that wisdom is applied for communities. So I feel that tragedy. My question is maybe why has that come about and what could Christians and others do to um, to overcome it? So, um, well, you already helped and, and partly from you and the people that I've been introduced to through Theos and so forth, you come to realise that actually your the Christian worldview um, is not quite what you think it is, first of all. Um, and, and I feel as though maybe... Christians as a whole play a very good hand quite badly. And by that I mean, you mentioned the G-bomb and, and when you were at the RSA you also have this lovely term, the objective transcendent. These are all ways of avoiding the word God. But I think it's fascinating that we're so scared of this word God because there are many ways of approaching it that are not that threatening at all. You know, the the notion of a sort of big daddy in the sky with a heart, surely we've moved beyond that. And and But once you realise we've moved beyond it, what then are we talking about? You mentioned objective transcendent as a kind of joke, but actually... It's something like, you know, Rowan Williams calls it love and mathematics. As, uh, that's his distilled definition of God. Um, an objective transcendent could also be subjective transcendent. Maybe God is the place where subjective and objective are ultimately aligned. W- whatever it is, uh, it could also be the uh, sort of implicit theory of consciousness. God, described by David Bentley Hart and, and, and going into the classical tradition, it's not his definition, but being consciousness and bliss. Now, who's against being? Who's against consciousness? Who's against bliss? When you, and then the story is that God is a sort of confluence of these fundamental properties of reality and then there's a subsequent question of well I might go that far and that's all very interesting but what does it mean that he sent forth his son to die on the cross for our sins how would that make any sense and at first blush it doesn't frankly at first blush it just sounds radically uh, you know kind of obtuse and, and unbelievable but then things evolve um, and I feel a bit more sympathetic to the idea now we've talked a bit about um our public conversations and I think some of the things we're drawing out here are part of the problem that we don't we reject people's position or tradition before we understand it mm. um, and we're sometimes our own worst enemies yeah. in that we don't fully understand our own sense of the sacred or other sense of the sacred so we we try and assume everyone will be thinking and acting and speaking rationally whereas actually there's a kind of heart-led emotional um, social uh, anthropology which is perhaps a more realistic mm-hmm understanding of who we are there's a kind of an emotional intelligence deficit Mm -hmm. in our public conversations perhaps a spiritual intelligence deficit so uh, i want to hear a bit more about perspective but perhaps particularly in in how its work might um help us with some of those problems about how we talk to each other in public and how we live together with difference okay so um you mentioned uh emotional intelligence and spiritual intelligence so i'll keep the intelligence out of it because i think personally that complicates matters 
as unhelpfully. But well, it's such a safe ground it, for those of us who like to think we're highly educated. It, it is, it is, but but it's also a bit, it obscures something quite important. So one of the things that changed between the first edition of Spiritualized that came out in 2014 and the new edition that came out in 2017 is that I'm actually, I'm actually a bit weary of the very term spirituality now. Um, not the spiritual, not spiritualized, but spirituality, the complex noun, creates a lot of problems because when people hear a complex noun, they sort of look for it in the world. They sort of say, where is that? There's a table, there's a chair, now where's spirituality? It, it actually disorients us a little bit. So now the language I prefer to use where possible, obviously you don't get too fussy about these things or you never you know, say anything to anyone. But my preferred term now is spiritual sensibility. And I think sensibility rather than intelligence is the, a better way in. Now, most people listening to this will immediately think, hang on, sense and sensibility, wasn't that Jane Austen or whatever? But sensibility is actually a notion of something about your relationship to reality, your inclination to act, what you hold to be of value, um, how you orient yourself to other people. There's a, it's a very subtle notion that, that actually holds the notion of the spiritual much better than most other holding patterns, better than intelligence uh, and better than nouns. And I think, um, I think we need to cultivate that. And what it means to cultivate that, it means that uh, we need to think a bit more about why are we so scared of the question of ultimate reality? A lot of people say that they're atheists, but there are some atheists who are very, very engaged, who, who know what they're rejecting, who have a theory of consciousness and are very robustly have said, no, I don't believe it. Being conscious and bliss, for example, that I just mentioned, um, well, I think that those things are all manifest in the world, but I don't think there's any subjective being or ground of being underneath it. <clears throat> And then you can talk about why is that and how does that mean. But there are also atheists who just kind of haven't really gone there. You know, who just have, they're sort of, they're sort of pre-religion, not post-religion. Um, and so they haven't really asked themselves, what is my view of ultimate reality? Is it just matter? If it's just matter, how do I account for subjective experience and consciousness? Does it strike me as true, even if it's fashionable? And people like Daniel Dennett or whoever will, will tell you, um, of course, consciousness is just an epiphenomenon of matter and so forth. But most people in the real experience, if they ask themselves, honestly, do I believe that? Is that really what I think this world is? I suspect not. I suspect most people would say, no, actually, whatever it is that I'm experiencing, that person over there is experiencing something similar. And it feels like the world was created in such a way that it's also experiencing this at some level, that there's a kind of macroscopic consciousness. I think that there are lots of people like that who would be quite happy to go to the question of reality with you and talk about that. I also think, and this is a more interesting challenge, unfortunately, the teachings of Jesus and the Bible have been framed in almost exclusively moralistic terms. They're almost exclusively about what you shouldn't do with your life. Received to have been. Received to have been. Exactly. Because and yet... In reality, that's not how people talk who are quite close yeah, to it. Yeah. No, that's, and so that becomes quite interesting in terms of the, who has responsibility for the communication in a world that's so thoroughly interconnected where you can't really control the message anymore. And that's a big challenge for everyone. Um, but in this case, you know, you mentioned the extraordinary figure in the New Testament. Now... Where are people with that? If you if you actually ask people, say, you know, why did Jesus speak in stories, for example, or even prior to that, do you accept that such a person existed? Before you accept that he was son of God or even what that means, was there such a person? Did these stories really happen? Were these encounters valid? Now, and then, and then once you get into that question, the, the answer will probably be, well, I'm not quite as sure as you that this happened, but it seems the evidence is quite strong that something happened. And then I need to know from that perspective, what does it mean to say that when he says he's son of God or, you know, what on earth can that mean? And then the conversation moves on. But part of our cultural problem is we don't really have bandwidth for that. You know, you need hours, days, weeks, months 
once. And most of the time you're asked to get to the point really fast and someone will judge you on the basis of that nugget. So I'm not quite sure how you do it, but somehow it's to do with the so-called G-bomb, the God question. I think we're unbelievably allergic to God in the sort of Western liberal tradition of the sort of mainstream public intellectual world. Uh, people are far too scared of God. It's almost comical. Uh, and then the, the richer question about the Christian tradition, you just need to meet some interesting Christians. You know, just meet some thoughtful people who happen to be Christian and most of those problems will be solved. I feel like there's a whole other conversation we could have about um, why people are so allergic to the concept of God and what's going on emotionally um, in terms of kind of existential threat and ego, which we've talked about, and a threat to autonomy and all those kind of things that we're only really beginning to understand and certainly need to feed in into our um, the way we talk to each other in yeah. public and the way we are gentle with each other's uh, emotional reactions and the way we're aware of our own emotional reactions. Um, so perhaps to finish as uh, someone who um, we really value uh, the perspective, the perspective of, uh, what is the one thing that um, Christians, religious people could do to help these conversations across difference, particularly differences around religion and unbelief, be had better? How could we help? I'm not sure, but um, I can tell you what had an impact on me and why, and, and that might you might extrapolate from that. So one was meeting spending more time with you and, and people that you've introduced me to, um, Nick certainly at Theos and then other friends. Um, the other was reading Francis Bufford's extraordinary book, um, Unapologetic, and some of the language used there. I think the language was not insignificant. So calling sin the human propensity to F things up um, and calling, you know, referring to... Jesus by his sort of original name and trying to establish what it means on the page to have a relationship with this historical creature and how extraordinary that is uh, and yet weird as well but weird maybe in a way that we need um, and to, to get to the emotional side of the religion more than the moralistic or intellectual side because at first blush the story and the mor- and the morals will be very difficult to receive and yet those are those are the typical entry points people imagine but the experiences being in church meeting the people and the emotions that what do we need to feel whole what do we need to feel loved and to love um, and what does the tradition have to tell us about those things if you stay on those realms um, where it's more about sort of sentiment and sens- sensibility and less about metaphysics and morality then I think people become more receptive um, and when they're more receptive the stories that most Christians believe in or at least partly believe in don't seem quite so absurd. They begin to be uncanny rather than absurd. Like, reality would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? So I would say those are the sort of places to tap better. Um, and also, uh, you know, like I say, the, you're doing it already. Um, not, not to be driven by a Christ sense of crisis, but maybe, 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 maybe things are not going quite so badly. Maybe it's okay to um, make gradual progress and not to panic. Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, that was incredibly rich and stimulating and fascinating. Um, and we hope to have Francis Bufford on a future podcast. So perhaps eventually we'll be able to get you both in a room. Thank you so much. And I hope to speak to you again soon.
so much for listening to our first episode of The Sacred. Please listen out for future episodes. I'm going to be talking to the hilarious comedian Pippa Evans, the wonderful writer Francis Spufford, public priest Giles Fraser, the head of Humanists UK Andrew Copson, and many more. And those are going to be, we hope, some really meaty and enriching conversations about how we deal with difference in public. If you think these issues are important, if you think the role of belief and unbelief and how we deal with people who disagree with us are important, please consider signing up to the Friends Network of Theos to support our work. You can find out more about Theos on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, or follow us on social media to join the conversation. 